superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With, Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm alive. I'm alive. I survived the flu this week. Uh, Bruce, you have had the worst run of health that I've known a person to have, but we are glad you're still with us. Uh, you went to Detroit, you got snowed in, you came back with the flu, and you kicked out on two. And here we are to talk about No Way Out 1998, but before we get into that, Let's put a bow on last week's episode. Lots of good feedback that I heard about our Undertaker episode last week. Of course, we covered years 95, 96, and 97. One of the most intriguing follow-up questions that I saw posted online was people wanting to know more about how The Undertaker came through the ring 
in February of 1996 when Diesel took on Bret Hart inside of a cage. Of course, remember the Undertaker comes up through the ring, pulls pulls Diesel down. There's a smoke effect, and then Diesel's back out of there. Chat me up. How long would the Undertaker be under there? What are the time cues? How does he get through the boards? How does he cut through the canvas? What's all that look like? Well, you, you've got to be able to get him under there. Later on, we earlier, you know, you go back years before, and the talent, if they were going to be under the ring for any kind of a surprise entrance like that, they would be under there all day long so that no one would ever see him go underneath the ring. Uh, we learned later on that we could do blackouts, especially at TV. We could do blackouts and sneak someone in underneath the ring, and no one would be the wiser. And that's what we did with Undertaker. Just get him under there, and, and right before it was time for the match. And it was as simple as having a certain portion of the ring that was blocked out so that he could pop the boards out, have a, a extremely sharp razor cutter, and cut the mat up, and you just take it from one end to the other. And it's funny because th- those had to be rehearsed, and you had to cut it a certain way for it to rip the right way. You had to cut, I guess, against the grain so that when you ripped it, it ripped with the grain. And uh, little details that you learn trial and error as you go on. Well, so talk to me about rehearsal that day. I mean, you, you guys get to the building early that day and try breaking away the boards and cutting through a canvas just as a dry run? Yeah, we, we definitely went through it so cameras would be able to see it, know exactly where he was going to come through and when. How but there were boards and the way that the ring was was built for that specific ring. There was able for those boards to have an area that was cut out, and the whole area came out, and guys knew not to work in that area of the ring. When that came out, so there was a part of the match when that area came out, the guys didn't work in that side of the ring. So they would have, what would be the, what would be the Iggy, so to speak? How would they communicate to the guys in the ring? Okay, now. Well, they, they know the match and they've got a monitor and a headset underneath the ring. Okay. So whoever's under the ring is watching the match. They know, okay, now it's time and I can, I'm safe to go ahead and do my shit. And the referee has an IFB, and he tells the guys, "Hey, don't go to that side. Don't go to that corner now." Like, well, they the, knew. They, they knew in the coming, match. Like, but yeah, I mean, they knew in the match. But I don't think we had IFBs at that time, even then. So they just sort of guessed. Okay, it's probably about time. Don't go over there. Well, they knew the spot. They knew they would do a certain spot, and then they would work to the other side of the ring. I got you. Okay, well, that makes sense. Well, I got great feedback from our Undertaker episode. It was four hours and 41 minutes. Not all of you heard all of it, though. Uh, we had a few listeners What's up with that? complain that Spotify cut us off. Uh, Spotify has aired some of our even longer episodes before, but for whatever reason, last week's was too long for them. So you may have heard us just in mid-sentence stop talking. Uh, I encourage you now, if you haven't already, download a second app. Uh, and I don't want to disparage Spotify. I use it all the time at my house. But I do see the need for a second app because just a week prior to this, we had a similar situation with Podbean. A lot of listeners complained, hey, what happened to the podcast? Because Podbean gave us a new feed. Neither Podbean nor Spotify gave us a heads up in these last two weeks, so we didn't know it was an issue until you found out. So I'm going to encourage you, use one app on your phone and maybe another on your tablet. 
So that way you can sort of hedge your bets with Google Play or Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or just download it directly every Friday at noon at somethingtowrestle.com. But if you haven't already, get us on a couple of different apps on a couple of different devices and hit the subscribe button so this will not happen to you and you won't go without your Bruce Pritchard fix. Oh, that was a stretch. But it's not a stretch that we're covering. No Way Out 1998. Yesterday was the 20-year anniversary. This show went down back on February 15th, 1998 at the Compact Center right there in Bruce's hometown of Houston, Texas. It broke all kinds of records for the WWF. We had 16,110 fans. It was a sellout more than a week in advance. Uh, those fans paid $241,992, so a huge gate. But the most incredible number of all, over $166,000 in merchandise in a single night. The business is on fire. And a lot of that has to do with Mike Tyson. Uh, he came in at Royal Rumble 1998, which is available now in the archives. And we briefly covered that Raw after the Rumble, but we're going to pick it back up with that same Raw the night after the Royal Rumble. This is January 19th in Fresno. Once again, a sellout. And the show opens with Paul Bear explaining the last two weeks were a ruse. Me and Kane were together the whole time, and The Undertaker is gone. Something else of note that Dave had in The Observer is that the Quebecers had just signed new contracts, reportedly for four years. I've always been fascinated by the Quebecers and their mere presence in the promotion here. Who was campaigning backstage for the Quebecers to be re-signed? Vince always had a soft spot for Quebec and the Montreal, the province of Quebec. And I don't know if it goes back to the association with Andre the Giant and Andre being a part owner in that office at one time or just what it was. But Vince always felt that he needed to have a Quebec star, someone from Quebec, Montreal, in that area to be able to draw in that province. And Vince always thought that was important. And that's the reason for it, just that simple. And Vince liked the Rougeaus, and here was an opportunity to, to keep two Quebec stars that he could use in that province when he needed to. Sable is on the show here, seconding Mark Merrow for his match with Tom Brandy. And in the middle of the match, Sable gets flowers delivered at ringside. So Merrow, of course, jumps all over her for it and winds up shoving the flowers down Brandy's throat. Of course... Marrow's star is uh, being surpassed by Sable at this point in the promotion. Has that started to affect their relationship at this point, to the best of your knowledge, Bruce? No, outwardly, I think in public, without a doubt, there was no signs, at least to me. And I don't think that they really started having problems until later. But at this time, I don't remember seeing any public signs whatsoever. Jeff Jarrett is on this episode of Raw, beating Blackjack Bradshaw, defending his NWA North American title, and he's being seconded by the Rock and Roll Express, who are sporting the tag team titles for the NWA, although this time the WWF lays off and doesn't refer to them as the NWA tag champs. Remind us again what the pitch sounded like to have the NWA invade the WWF. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Hey, Bruce, real question. You know, there's lots of rumor and innuendo out here this week that um, Double J might be going into the WWE Hall of Fame. Hypothetically, if that were to happen, do you think he performs the song? 
<laughs> you know, that it would be great if he did. It would be the first time that he ever performed the song actually in the WWF, WWE. So if he does go in, I think it would be great if he did. I also think it would be great if Brian James, Road Dog Brian James, is the one that inducted him into the hall. How cool is it that uh, we had Double J on stage with us last WrestleMania singing the song, and now a year later, WWE's going to rip us off maybe. I know, right? Maybe they need me to be there to just sing a little bit and tell them how I spend my days. I really like it. Uh, they you do know. a spot on this Raw that um, has always been something that stuck out to me. The, it looks like The Undertaker is descending down from the ceiling, but it's actually Shawn Michaels dressed up as him. And then he does an interview saying he doesn't lay down for anyone, and he's roasting uh, weenies and salamis and making all kinds of dick comments, including Triple H with a suck the cook shirt, and Michaels even... Uh, took a weenie, and acted like he was jacking it off. That's all word for word from the Observer. And jacking it off is not something you're used to seeing in the Observer, but there it was. Bruce, talk me through this. Whose idea? I mean, obviously, it's lots of sophomoric humor. It's silliness. It feels like it's got Vince Russo all over it. It doesn't age well, but at the time, this shit was getting over, was it not? Well, you know, it... forget about Vince Russo for a minute. This had Vince McMahon written all over it. <laughs> and... It was, you know, God damn, that's attitude. He's giving us attitude. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, and hang on it now. was, is he saying now, God damn it, Sean, really jack it. I mean, really jack that weenie, jack the weenie. God damn fervor with fervor. You got to twist at the top, pal. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it was a time that. Sean was Sean was edgy. Everything that he was doing was edgy, and we might as well capitalize on on the dirt sheets and everybody else, and all the rumor and innuendo and everything else that's going on. Capitalize on that. Use it to our advantage. Next up is the major angle that we're here for: Austin and Tyson in the middle of the ring. We talked about that a lot in our Royal Rumble '98 show, but let's read what Steve Austin wrote in his book. It was all good working with Mike Tyson. The first time I met Mike, he called me Cold Stone. He kept calling me that, even though we did several shows together. So I used to make him mad. I'd say to him, why do you got to call me Cold Stone? It's damn easy, stone cold. I'd do it in character, barking at him, and he'd say, okay, Steve. But sure enough, he'd call me Cold Stone the next time, too. This is something a lot of fans still talk about today, the idea that, for whatever reason, Mike just could never say it right. It was always Cold Stone. Did Vince ever try to coach him on this? Is this something you guys talked about? We all tried to coach him on that. <laughs> I think it was just a mental block with Mike that he thought he was saying Stone Cold, but it was coming out Cold Stone. And I don't know if it was like a dyslexia thing or what it was, but for whatever reason, man, Mike just had that issue and he couldn't do it. Every once in a while he'd get it right. As we covered last time that we covered 1998, the Royal Rumble 98, we talked about the tremendous amount of mainstream publicity that this gets. I mean, most newspapers in America cover it. All the radio shows cover it. It's front page news everywhere around the world, including Japan. Uh, but Fox Sports, Sports Center, USA Today, the AP, everybody has it. And people, even in these mainstream publications, are sort of freestyling. That the idea was for him to be a referee, but now people are wondering, might he get involved and be a participant? 
Uh, would you say up until this point, you know, that you had been with the company, this is the most media coverage that the company had ever received as long as you'd been there? Um, at least for my tenure, I don't know what rest the original WrestleMania was like. And I told, I was told that that was an absolute just circus. But for me and the time that I had been there, without a doubt, this was insane. It was great. Everybody was covering it. No matter where you turn, people were talking about Mike Tyson and Steve Austin and WrestleMania. Now, even though, you know, he's not allowed to box, according to the Nevada State Athletic Commission, Mike's going to enter training camp pretty soon. So it feels like, you know, in order for him to make this WWF thing work, he probably has some sort of conversation with you guys about what level of physicality he will or won't do. And he can't risk physical injury, right? Yeah, definitely. And Mike had no desire. I think there was a deep down. I say no desire. There's probably a deep down desire for Mike Tyson because he was a fan as a kid to be a wrestler. But at the same time, Mike knew his role and knew that, he was a great boxer and maybe wouldn't be the same in the wrestling ring. So he wanted to protect what he had in the boxing world, make sure that there was going to be no harm come to him, so to speak. Um, was there a conversation about it maybe being impossible to make Mike Tyson a babyface? I mentioned this because every time he shows up, he's getting booed. And a lot of people are booing him because of the sort of sketchy past, whether it's, you know, the rape or it's uh, biting Vander Holyfield's ear. He's just a controversial figure, and it's not always for positive stuff. So it feels like he's a natural heel and easy to boo. Was there ever a concern that you might not be able to turn him? Well, no. Uh, seriously, there wasn't. There was a concern uh, at the beginning of trying to bring him in as a baby face, and we knew that that wasn't going to work. You had to bring him in as Mike Tyson and put him against Stone Cold, which automatically puts him as a heel, no matter what you do with him. So that was the idea, and the hotter the heel, the the hotter the baby face. So the, the, the plan to kind of spin him there at the end. But there was never really any intent to, hey, let's bring Mike Tyson in as the white meat baby face. That wasn't going to happen because, man, he was he was a heel in the real world. This Raw, after the Rumble, does the best rating Raw has ever done since the Monday Night Wars began. It does a 4.0, but it's still not enough to beat Nitro, which gets a 4.44. You guys had to be kind of let down. I mean, obviously, you get tons of media coverage, but you had to hope that you would win the night, right, in the Monday Night Wars? We were hoping that we would, definitely, but, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of in, you're in it. We did very well, but it wasn't something that uh, I was going to lose any sleep over. Was Tyson ever considered for the Raw in Indianapolis? He wasn't booked for that show. But when I was doing my research and I saw you guys were in Indianapolis, I thought, well, they can't have him there. I, I say that because that's where the rape trial went down. Was that something that you guys knew or were cognizant of? Or did he say, I'm not doing that one? Did his handler say that? Or how does that come to be? There was never any intention of using him, and there was really not any intention of using Mike again until after we got through No Way Out. So it, it wasn't even a consideration because you didn't want to confuse people that Mike was going to be at the pay-per-view at No Way Out. You just wanted to get get to WrestleMania, get that awareness out there at the Rumble, and move on from there. Now, it's funny you say that because one of the roles we're going to cover on the way to No Way Out ends with Austin 
saying, you know, or challenging Mike Tyson to a fight in Houston. So you're saying you don't want to confuse them, yet you've got your lead baby face on camera challenging him as the show goes off the air. But we never said he'd be there. Oh, gosh. Artful well, we didn't. It's not like you said he doesn't come out and say, I'll see you in Houston. A challenge is a challenge. If he shows up, it's an added bonus. That's it's an added value. I love you. Um, you guys got Austin to do photos uh, with Sean and Mike Tyson for TV Guide. Do you recall how a, a cover opportunity like that comes to be? Do you guys call TV Guide and say, hey, we got something pretty special that could help you sell some magazines? Or do they see you have Tyson coming in, and then they call you and pitch you guys? We were we were always pitching TV Guide to get anything in there, and the timing was right, having Mike Tyson. So it was all it, it was another instance of timing and we were red hot and they were looking at us because we were on the rise and Tyson was hot and Austin was hot. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, what's next because Dave is really pushing in the observer, this idea quote, they're hopeful he'll appear at the February 15th pay-per-view from Houston, which appears to be the working idea for his next live involvement. Are you saying that was never the case? I'm so, no, it wasn't because if we were going to have him, we would have wanted to advertise him and get the most bang for our buck. Uh, this coverage in the mainstream is ridiculous. Tokyo Sports, Nikon Sports, uh, USA Today, Inside Edition, Daily News, everybody is talking about Mike Tyson at WrestleMania and it's front page news. And we covered, or we mentioned earlier that it was a big deal in Japan. That country was seemingly obsessed. I mean, very intrigued with Mike Tyson, the character, don't you think? Yeah, I think they're just obsessed with all things combat sports. So having Mike Tyson in a wrestling ring to them is the holy grail, if you will. But you guys weren't necessarily doing pay-per-view in Japan at the time, right? No, and the fact that, you know, other than Dave Meltzer, I don't know that uh, it being on the front page of Tokyo is is that big of a deal for us because we were looking at, again, we were looking at pay-per-view buys in the domestic United States and worldwide, it may have meant something for video sales later on, but, you know, it was what it was. It was everywhere. It just feels like when you've got a big opportunity like that, when there is all that coverage, you might try to find a way to leverage it or something, whether it's taking a live show over there or what. Thomas uh, Umstead, the pay-per-view sports editor of the multi-channel news, predicted that Mike Tyson's involvement in the show, WrestleMania, is going to add at least 100,000 to 150,000 buys to WrestleMania. Do you remember having specific conversations with Vince about how many buys you guys needed to classify this as a success? I'm sure Vince had that number in his head. I'm sure the pay-per-view people did. But we were looking at it as here's an opportunity to get back on the map, and this is the springboard for Stone Cold Steve Austin, and it's going to add a lot of buys. It's going to add not just buys but eyeballs that are going to be tuning in to see what the hell Mike Tyson does, not only at WrestleMania but the next night on Raw as well. So that was the game plan. That's what we were pushing for. We were pushing for all of the exposure all the way through it. Was any of Tyson's deal based on pay-per-view buys? Like a lot of UFC performers get paid a base to show up and fight, but then they get a bonus based on sales milestones of the pay-per-view. That was not the case for Tyson? No, not to my knowledge. Mike Mike came in, and Mike was looking for something, and we we were looking – 
as I had talked about in the, the Royal Rumble episode, we were looking to be the ones. Mike was on the outs with his management with Don King, and we were looking for that opportunity to possibly pick that up and become Mike's manager in the boxing world as well. So there were a lot of – there was just a lot, many irons in the fire here with the Mike Tyson fire. Uh, Raw the next week was actually taped on January 20th, but it aired on January 26th. Once again, it drew a sellout in Davis, California. This time the gate's only 72,000 because it's a much smaller building. There was a tryout match that was kind of interesting that night. Vic Grimes beat Aaron O'Grady, uh, smarting everybody up. Who would Aaron O'Grady later go on to become in the WWF? Uh, that was uh, Crash Holly. There you go. Uh, the New Age. You know who Raw. Vic Grimes would later become? I forget the guy's name. Key. Oh, there you go. Like cocaine. Um, uh, stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. The New Age Outlaws are on this Raw, and they beat... Um, Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transform your photos into a one-of-a-kind hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started, and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited-time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie by DQ, and they beat up the ref. And what Meltzer called a good brawl. And then after the match, Funk buried Jesse James under the chairs and moonsaulted him. Uh, hypothetically, what do you think Terry Funk was thinking or saying to himself as he's middle-aged and crazy climbing to the top turnbuckle to do a flip? Ryan James, your mother's a whore. Meltzer wrote of this show, quote, instead of the promised Owen versus Triple H match, it was Owen versus Goldust dressed up as Triple H with a blonde wig and a large fake nose with Luna dressed up as China. The crowd felt like they'd been ripped off. The match ended when Owen wins using a sharpshooter, but DX got on the video wall and made fun of him for wasting his time beating a copy. Who wrote the, uh, the rib on Hunter's nose and how was he with it? Oh, he was fine with it. He ribs his nose. Vince, Vince is the one that always does the, the hook nose. So, uh, Hunter ribs, ribs himself about his nose all the time anyway. So slaughter then told DX the jokes on them. And since triple H was supposed to be in the match and he wasn't Owen is the new European champion quote, 
Another WWF title changes hands with the champion not having to do a job. Is that Meltzer calling this correctly, or do you disagree and think this is a good angle? I do think it was a good angle because it was another way to get in without having to give away the match, and it just added a little bit more to it. The European, it wasn't like, and I hate to say this because I hate having a bunch of, and I hate having a bunch of championships in general, but at the same time, the European championship didn't mean that much anyway, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit about um, the rumor and innuendo about Butterbean because Meltzer reports the working plan was Mark Merrill versus Butterbean for a match at WrestleMania 14. And he says Butterbean is contracted for one more WWF pay-per-view appearance, and there was some discussion about holding it off until the April or May pay-per-view, depending on how the chips fell once the Mania card was finalized. Do you remember that being talked about as an attraction at 14, Mark Merrill versus Butterbean? It was talked about an awful lot, not just at WrestleMania, but you know for other pay-per-views as well. We had... Uh, I'd worked with Eric uh, Esch, who's, who is Butterbean, and his manager, Art Door, And we had come up with, let's do so many so many fights, and let's figure out a way to promote Butterbean. They were looking to get beyond the tough man contest, and Butterbean was looking to maybe enter the world of professional wrestling also. But Bean had, Bean had a good gig with the tough man contest and the super heavyweight deal and he didn't want to he wasn't ready to make that jump just yet so there was talk yeah there definitely was talk of doing marrow at one point because marrow had a boxing background and it's it's funny when you when you talk to boxers and you talk to fighters and i guess this is the mark of a of a fighter just to be a fighter i think you'll never talk to a fighter and say no i can't take somebody Every one of them will, will sit there and think about it and go, yeah, and no, I, I, I could beat him. And Marrow thought that, uh, Marrow felt that, yeah, he could have taken being in the right situation. Well, I'm glad we're talking about boxing because Meltzer reported that TCI Cable was saying it wouldn't carry WrestleMania until they knew Tyson's exact role in the show and received the heads up from the Nevada State Athletic Commission that they had given approval for this to happen. And I guess this is in an effort to, quote-unquote, protect the sport of boxing, or so TCI would say. It's worth mentioning that at the time, TCI had like 15% of the homes in the United States. Do you remember this nonsense, Bruce, and how it all got worked out? I I don't remember TCI in particular or anything like that, or anybody threatening not to run the pay-per-view if they don't know what Mike Tyson's role Everyone in the pay-per-view business, everyone in the cable business, they knew. The cable companies, they knew what Mike Tyson's role was going to be in the WrestleMania match. So for them to come out with this bullshit, they knew. Everybody knew because we let them all know ahead of time. If anything, there was concern in the uh, state athletic commissions as to what is his role going to be. And... Is he going to box? Is he going to do anything like that? That was really the only uproar I ever remember with Tyson. Meltzer reported in the February 9th Observer this about Shawn Michaels. He wouldn't be in line to do a job on pay-per-view without an injury cropping up now, would he? After taking a dangerous backdrop over the top rope with his lower back cracking on the casket at Royal Rumble on January 18th in San Jose in basically the very first spot of the match, Michaels missed the shows the weekend of the Super Bowl, complaining that as the week went on, his back had stiffened up. 
This past week, Michael's doctor sent word to the WWF that he had a variety of ailments, including a bruised kidney, a slightly separated shoulder, both hips out of alignment, a sprained foot, vertebrae in his back out of alignment, not to mention the worsening of his chronic knee problems. We're going to talk a lot about Sean on this episode and WrestleMania 14. We're just trying to go in chronological order. But when do you remember hearing about all these injuries other than the Royal Rumble match back injury that we all know about? Well, whenever you go to a doctor for one specific injury, I think any professional wrestler could walk into any doctor on any given day of the week and have a litany of injuries and problems that are 100% legitimate that they could then have that doctor come back and say, oh, well, he's got this, he's got this, he's got that. That's the nature of the business. Um, the fact that Sean went in with the back and they came back with all of this other stuff, I think was just kind of heaping on. So the question is, do you think this is Sean just not wanting to do business and getting this laundry list of injuries that every wrestler has documented and sent over as justification to lay out. I think that it was the back injury was bad enough as it is. And I think that he added on everything else to say not. And if, and if that's not enough, here's all my other injuries that I've been working on. And then people blow that out from there. Was there any, so yeah, I think he heaped on. Was there any heat on him for missing the shots and sending this laundry list? You know, there was, there was doubt. I think that a lot of people, you know, doubted the authenticity of his injuries, especially at this time with all the problems with Sean. So there was, there was heat that how bad could it be? You know, he worked the rest of the match, but you know, as we found out later on, yeah, it was a lot worse than anybody knew at the time, but it also at the time there was a lot of doubt based on his reputation and the past. Did, um, you said there's a lot of doubt. Was there a lot of doubt from Vince or other people? I think everybody, I, I think everybody involved had doubt. Shawn Michaels, uh, injury canceled two Canadian dates for title defenses against Owen Hart coming off the survivor series match. Of course, the Montreal screw job An announced main event with Shawn Michaels and Owen Hart in Toronto had already hit $187,000 at the gate. And the advance for the February 27th Vancouver show broke the all-time gate record at 219,000. Uh, that record was a WWF record from 96. And here they are, you know, a year and a half later, breaking it again with Owen versus Sean. Do you know if Owen felt like Sean was avoiding working with him? Cause this does feel like it sort of cuts the knees out from under him. I think that Owen and I think everybody else just kind of felt in general that Sean was, they just lacked the validity of his claims and lacked the validity of his injury. You know, no one knew. They just thought, okay, is this another instance of he lost his smile? So there was that general feeling, I think, overall of everybody in the locker room at this point. Uh, Meltzer reports that Bud Paxson, who ran Paxnet, was furious that the WWF had a press release that sort of hinted that WWF programming would be a regular part of his networks when, in fact, the WWF had just purchased infomercial space to sell WrestleMania in both February and March. What was Paxnet, and do you remember this association? 
Paxnet was just like a, a basically a Barker channel, another Barker channel on cable. It was another opportunity to be able to put our shows on and get out the word for WrestleMania. So, uh, I don't know who Bud Paxson is, but <laughs> we simply bought time and it was promotional time to promote WrestleMania. That's all it ever was. And we promoted that, Hey, our shows will be on this network. I don't know. Uh, this sounds like something that Meltzer or somebody else just kind of blew out of proportion to say, how dare they say they're going to be on our network? Why wouldn't we say we're going to be on their network if we want people to watch it to see the promotion? It made the daily news that Tyson was about to split from Don King, allegedly over the WWF deal. Um, do you recall hearing about this? Of course, we know that Tyson go on, goes on to sue Don King for $100 million, saying that King had cheated him out of millions of dollars for over a decade. I think they wound up settling out of court for like $14 million. Do, do you remember this situation? I remember there uh, there was big-time heat with uh, Don King and Mike Tyson during this time, and that that's pretty much how we got in because Mike was unhappy with his management, not unhappy with Don King. Now, we had initially contacted Don not knowing that there was heat, heat yeah, with, with the two. So when we got in, we saw this was an opportunity for us to come in and, like I said, possibly manage – Mike down the line, but yeah, there was, there was big time heat. Mike felt that Don was stealing from him. I think that Mike, uh, had married his new wife at this time as well. And she was a pretty damn smart cookie. I'm glad you mentioned that because it comes out around the time that you guys do the press conference, which we're going to get to in a minute, that this WWF deal may have actually been the straw that broke the camel's back between King and Tyson as far as their relationship goes. Because allegedly Tyson's wife finds out from someone inside the WWF that the WWF paid Don King $300,000 to use Mike Tyson's likeness, which the Tysons thought they owned. Of course, Mike took issue with this and didn't feel that it was right that King should be paid for that. Is that the way you remember the fallout sort of coming to a head? Uh, God, I just think it all came to a head over everything because the disagreement started before we got involved with it. And it came to a head because all of a sudden you have somebody and that's us where we're telling Mike pretty much everything that we're doing. And he had never really been treated like that before. He had just kind of been told where to go and what to do. And now someone's talking to him about, we have these plans, we have those plans, and what do you think about that? For the first time in his career, he's being asked questions, and he's a part of the decision-making. So all of this was new to Mike. And it was new to some of his people, too, as well, that he had around him. So it was a culmination, and I think that the WWE and all this was just the – the last thing that probably in a long line of things with Don King. All right. So let's get back to this episode of raw. And this is one of the more memorable scenes from raw. It starts with Terry Funk and Cactus Jack doing some great interviews, building up a singles match between the two and they have a pretty fun match. And eventually, so Cactus Jack throws chainsaw Charlie uh, into the dumpster and then comes off the Titan Tron with an elbow into the dumpster and this brings out the New Age Outlaws, who tie the dumpster shut and then push it off the stage through some tables. Meltzer said they did an incredible job, but it was clear that they were using puffy trash bags and styrofoam 
But he says they presented it as if something real had happened, that it wasn't scripted. It was very serious. And we see the outlaws apologizing to a very furious Vince McMahon. The show was stopped and it's presented as if this was a planned angle that backfired. And JR sort of using some inside lingo and calling the guys by their real names, Terry Funk and Mick Foley. They show uh, Sonny crying and being hysterical. And then they take them out in an ambulance. Um, they're wearing neck braces, of course. They're motionless. And Ross is saying things like going into business for yourself. This was a memorable moment in Raw and so well done. Any stories you can share with us about how this was put together? Well, I, I love I love that Meltzer saw inside of the dumpster and that it was full of styrofoam and puffy bags. And I hate when he discounts shit like that. It was it was an extremely dangerous stunt, and it was actually made more dangerous by Funk and uh, Mick not wanting to have a lot of protective stuff in the dumpster so that people could look in there and say, oh, my God, you know, that's going to be a hellacious fall. What was inside the dumpster was a grip so that they could grip and hold on when they went over the uh, edge and took that bump. That was something that, that Terry Funk wanted and that Mick wanted that so that it would look real. And when when somebody like like that sits there on their typewriter and types that kind of crap, it just infuriates the hell out of me because that's just not the case. And we did, yes, they were safe. And yes, we did it. But Funk and uh, Foley were so adamant about having too much shit in there to protect them that they wanted a lot of it taken out. And we did take a lot of it out. And there wasn't any extra padding. There was trash in there. There were trash bags in there. And they had something to hold on to that they felt would stabilize them better than if they had a, if you just had a bunch of styrofoam and shit in there, it wouldn't have been safe at all. Well, and I'm glad you said that because one of the things that I've always sort of felt was kind of weird about the way this is pitched is after we see this horrible scene that's done so well, we do a few segments with Michael Cole, who is on location at a hospital trying to get word on Cactus Jack and Terry Funk, but of course he knows nothing. And the signal winds up going out just as he's hysterical about the cops showing up. And then at the very end of the night, uh, when Steve Austin is out there and everybody's running in for a DQ, all of a sudden Cactus Jack and Terry Funk, who were teased just a few minutes prior as being comatose, are now doing a run-in. Terry Funk's wearing a hospital robe and his grungy underwear is noticeable, and he, of course he has a chainsaw. And Cactus Jack is doing a run-in hooked up to an IV. Doesn't this sort of take all the heat off of the angle earlier that night? Absolutely hated it. For all the reasons that I just gave you about why I hate everything Meltzer said, I hated that we shit all over it here. You know, it feels like completely it, took away. Yeah, it, it it kills all the realism, and may, it was real a minute ago, and now it's just funny, ha ha, jack off shit. And, and and not only was it real, it was dangerous as fuck. Right. I mean, it was, you know, to do that, and and you sit there and you throw it all away. You didn't. We didn't even throw it away in a week. We threw it away an hour later. Right. So, uh, just, I, I hated it. I hated it for, for all of those reasons because you did this great thing and it looked crazy and it was crazy. Um, and then we, we just shit all over with, Hey folks, 
It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> they're they're fine. It's all the work. Goldust yeah. is on this same show dressed as Marilyn Manson. Who was a big Marilyn Manson fan that thought that would be a fun idea? Marilyn Manson was hot at the time. We were using, I think we were using his music maybe at this time. I don't know. But uh, Marilyn Manson was hot. Goldust liked Marilyn Manson, and he was kind of that that it thing at the time. So why not steal from him? Uh, Raw gets a 3.2 for the show. Nitro does a 4.6. It's announced around this time that there wouldn't be any Slammy Awards before WrestleMania this year. Why was that? You guys had done the Slammys the last couple of years, and seemingly they were successful. Why the change of heart for 1998? Ugh, the Slammys. God damn, it just takes away, doesn't it? He would run hot and cold on the Slammys, especially in this kind of area. When you go back and you look at... There were times when we didn't have any celebrities because he felt celebrities took away from WrestleMania. And then you see a show like WrestleMania 11, and it's nothing but celebrities. Right. And, you know, you go back to kind of what put WrestleMania on the map was all the celebrities. Right. And then it, it just went back and forth. Ahmed Johnson uh, was hospitalized the morning of February 2nd when he collapsed on an airplane in Indianapolis due to dehydration. Do you remember... Ahmed collapsing on a plane. It feels like we're talking about this a lot during this time. The prior episode we did on The Undertaker, we covered when Sid just collapsed at a building. And now here Ahmed is collapsing on the airplane. A lot of collapsing going on. Is it dehydration or something else? I think it was just kind of going around. And I'm not, hey, not not going to say anything here, but I just think it might have been the uh, injury du jour, if you will. Hey, what happened? Oh, man, I collapsed. I got to go home. <laughs> you know, because when you collapse, you really don't have to have a reason per se. I was dehydrated. Oh, it was a bad injury. It was this. It was that. February 5th at the All-Star Cafe in New York is the WrestleMania 14 press conference. I've always been curious, why was this the location for this press conference? Why the All-Star Cafe? Times Square, middle of the world, man. And, you know, we did a lot. We did a lot at uh, the All-Star Cafe, the Harley-Davidson Cafe, and the Hard Rock because it was in Times Square in the middle of New York. It was accessible. And that's where a lot of people did. They were wired for everything. So it was easy for news media to come and just plug in. It was media-friendly in the heart of New York. It first opened up uh, December 18th, 1995, and I think it shut down sometime in 2007. But uh, anybody who visited New York during that era probably saw it. This is a big deal, man. You guys had over 27 television cameras there. More than 100 reporters are in attendance for this press conference. And it's a big deal, too, because it's the first public appearance that Mike Tyson has made since his split with Don King. Uh, Meltzer wrote, the WWF got almost no positive press out of this, aside from a Bob Rossman column in the New York Daily News, headlined, Vince revels as king for a day. The story proclaimed that McMahon is the big winner, saying he's already gotten full return on his investment from signing Tyson because it put the spotlight in wrestling back on the WWF away from WCW, and the crossover publicity was going to bring in new fans to both television and at the arenas. Uh, but Bob refers to a photo of Tyson, Austin, and Sean as the three stooges. And he makes references like hair extensions and steroid bloated phonies. 
Of course, when the WWF shows this clipping on Raw, all those lines are removed. You ever hear this guy? And what does Vince make of the comments? Because coming out of this press conference, it's not necessarily all glowing for the WWF. Like ESPN tuned out almost immediately once they realized, oh, this is just a pro wrestling hype job. But other people, Fox Sports, CNN, they covered it thinking that the Tyson King split is the real story. We were everywhere. WWF. Now, see, if it was WWE, I could use that. We were everywhere. So it was a success. Whether they're writing good or bad, you know they're going to write bad about you. What, some reporter's going to come up with the revelation that, oh, my God, wrestling's fake. Do you know that they know who's going to win before they actually have the matches? So it didn't matter. We were everywhere, and, you know, any publicity is good publicity, and the fact that everybody was talking about us, it didn't matter who the hell, you know, Bob Reisman was, as long as we were in his column and as long as we were being talked about all over the place because that's the name of the game. At that press conference, Tyson claimed, that the $3.5 million number that the media kept asking him about, because all the New York media, I shouldn't say all, most of the New York media was saying that Tyson's payday was going to be $3.5 million for his WrestleMania involvement. But at this press conference, Tyson says that number's low, and people start reporting it as $4 million. Meltzer would write, WWF sources claim that despite what Tyson said at the press conference, the $3.5 million figure is higher than the real number, and the company doesn't need a 2.0 buy rate to make a profit on the show. Bruce, give me something here. Were there two commas in his check? <laughs> yeah, and, and Floyd Mayweather made $20 million. So, you know, go ahead and do your own math there. And I, I don't, I, I wasn't privy to Mike Tyson's contract and what his deal was. And the, uh, you know, this is a good time to talk about the the other part of that which always kind of astounded me that guys didn't understand the the budget and the pay for me uh celebrities if you will at wrestlemania all that comes out of a different account all that comes out of a completely different part of the company not not associated with the boys' pay, so when they're talking about this was a big deal, especially with uh, Floyd Mayweather, because guys go, $20 million, that's going to affect my payday. No, it doesn't. Um, it wasn't $20 million. It's hype. It's press. You want people to think that we're paying $10, 20000000 million for Mike Tyson, whatever that may be. I'm sure Mike Tyson had a hell of a payday. I'm sure Mike Tyson made a million dollars or more. I'm not privy to exactly what he made, and even if I was privy, I wouldn't share it. But at the same time, it, it was probably inflated greatly. And for Mike Tyson to say, no, I only made 3.5 for the gig, doesn't do Mike Tyson any good either. All right, so let's talk about the press conference. Uh, this is kind of fun because at this press conference, Sean threatens to kick Tyson's teeth down his throat. Austin's teasing putting on the gloves to kick Tyson's ass for real. And, of course, eventually, it's getting heated. Sean and Austin are about to go at it, and Tyson and Shane McMahon have to try to keep the guy separated. But Mike, being a novice at this, has his back to the cameras for this. So Vince has to yell audibly, Turn around, Mike! What? God damn it, pal! Cameras! Get your face in the camera! Turn around, pal! Turn around! I want to see... 
。あ終わり。Give it to me, Mike! You know what they want! <laughs> oh, I might、god. have to see Mike Tyson again someday. Oh my god. I did not, I was not expecting you to do that. Thank you for that. Uh, what was Vince saying after this press conference? Did he think it was a home run? Was he pleased? Absolutely, man. You know, you have that much press there. Everybody's talking about it. And it doesn't matter that they're all, you know, getting their jabs in and bullshit. It was a success. And people were talking about the WWF and Mike Tyson. This takes us to the February 9th Raw. It's the go home show for No Way Out. It is a sellout. It goes down on February 3rd in Evansville, Indiana. And the show opens with Sonny dressed as Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to Freddie Blassie, who had just turned 80 over the weekend. Man, how roll tied was Sonny in 1998? Oh my God. Wait till we get to the,、uh, actual No Way Out card and what she was wearing there. Ouch.、Uh, Austin opens the show doing an interview with DX on the screen showing that he had stolen the WWF title belt. And they're, of course, building up the entire show for the eventual confrontation at the end of the show. And there's hints on this episode of Raw that Legion of Doom might be repackaged soon, and we'll discuss that, I'm sure, on our WrestleMania 14 episode.、Uh, Kane and Paul Bearer are back out doing an interview saying The Undertaker is never coming back, which usually means we'll see him in about a week.、Uh, in reality, The Undertaker was given some time off to heal up from some injuries and to spend time with his father, who is in poor health. That's according to the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Undertaker rarely asked off for time like this, right? I mean, Did you ever have a conversation with、uh, him about his dad and what was going on there? Yeah, actually,、uh, you know, his dad was in, was in poor health and his dad was、um, on oxygen and not doing really well. And Mark was close with his dad.、Uh, I even remember going, traveling down to Houston and visiting、uh, Taker's parents in Houston. And they, his mom still lives in the same, same house.、Uh, Here in Houston. So it, it was, it was a tough time. He was going through a lot. It was a good time storyline wise for Taker to be off and not unusual to, to take, take time off like that to go and be with his dad. So Steve Blackman beat Recon in four minutes and 35 seconds. I can't believe this is a real thing. Um, Meltzer would write Jackal came down from the ceiling preaching with a pulpit. Delivery was good. It took all the attention away from the match, but it went just as well. After the match, Jackal was yelling at Recon that if he didn't follow orders, he'd be back down in Memphis making 40 bucks a night and eating tuna out of a can and slapped his face.、Um, how do you think Don Callis did as Jackal? Was this a character that could have done more, do you think? I really thought that John,、uh, that, that John, that Jackal could have been a hell of a character, and I thought that He could have been a spokesman for a lot guy, a lot of guys. I wasn't a big fan of the Truth Commission. That was something that Bret Hart brought to us and Bret really wanted to do and that Vince wanted to give Bret. It was Bret's idea. Let him do this. Let, let Bret take this to fruition. Uh, I just was never a really big fan of it. I was a fan of Callus and, and being a mouthpiece for guys and I thought that he could have been a good mouthpiece going on into the future. Uh, the New Age Outlaws would reenact the dumpster angle from the prior week. This time they did it with, with crash test dummies dressed up like cactus and chainsaw.、Uh, and I couldn't believe this was in the Observer. Check this out. Meltzer wrote, Thrasher beat Goldust in four minutes and 28 seconds when the person CBS called the world's most dangerous boob job, Sable, 
slapped Goldust. Sable and Luna were arguing. Can you only imagine over what? With Sable slapping Luna before she stormed off, probably to get another breast enlargement. I think it's something like the old nuclear arms race where we all have enough bombs to blow up the world 15 times. Why did Dave hate Sable so much? I mean, he is just brutal about her breasts in 1998. Well, not only that, he hated gold dust, too, at the same time. Why does Dave hate anything? Obviously, Dave hates boobs. That's what it is. It's the boobs. You've got to kill. They're trying to kill the boobs. I think uh, maybe that's why he doesn't like you. Maybe he thinks you're a boob, or we're a couple of boobs. Easy now, Tiger. The show he ends. doesn't like titties. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he's a married man. I'm sure he does. The show ends. With I, D- I, I wonder sometimes. The show ends with DX coming out for an interview and Austin following. The outlaws come out. At this point, this is kind of fun. Uh, Chainsaw cuts a hole in the ring. He and Cactus come from underneath. Owen Hart shows up. And while all this is going on, China manages to steal back the title belt. Raw does a 3.2. Nitro does a 4.6. Is this sort of a similar situation from what we talked about at the top of the show with the Undertaker coming through the mat, except this time there's a real chain on the chainsaw in Texas (laughs) and chainsaw really cut their way through? Well, you got to have your shooting chainsaws and you got to have your working chainsaws. Where did they get the working chainsaws? Chainsaws are us. There you go. Dude, dude, dude. And this is, but again, this is another example of you, you have a good idea, you do it once, and then you wait a while to do it again. But it works so good, let's do it again. And hence, now we got a chainsaw coming through the middle of the mat. All right, here's what we're really here for, at least in my opinion. This is what the whole show is about. Meltzer wrote in The Observer, and I believe this is dated February 23rd, in what he called easily predictable that Shawn Michaels was diagnosed on February 11th, four days prior to the pay-per-view, no way out, as having two herniated discs in his lower back, supposedly aggravated by weight training the previous day. Dave finds the timing of this curious because we're just two days away from the one-year anniversary of when he lost his smile and just forfeited the title to avoid having to lose it to Bret Hart at WrestleMania. Meltzer would write, the injury, stemming at first from the major bump taken over the top rope with his back cracking on a casket at ringside at the Royal Rumble in San Jose, had kept him out of action to the point that the February 15th pay-per-view was scheduled to be his only appearance in ring before WrestleMania. Michaels was treated with cortisone shots to alleviate the problem and told to stay bedridden for at least one week after being kept at the San Antonio Methodist Hospital overnight for treatment and then released the next day. The injuries didn't even allow Michaels to travel to the pay-per-view in nearby Houston, nor the TV tapings in Dallas and Waco. So the WWF does their best to get the news out that he's not going to be there, and they push it out on the hotline almost immediately and then acknowledge it Friday in the Houston market and on Superstars for all of the national programming the morning of the pay-per-view. But you guys get this news literally four days before the pay-per-view. What's Vince's reaction here that... He just sort of lost the main event. He lost that main event. He was more concerned with having his main event at WrestleMania. And I think in Vince's mind, and this is pure speculation, is I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I have my match and I get that title switched at WrestleMania 
with Sean and Steve and Tyson as the referee. I got to get there. So I think Vince was willing to take it on the chin here and get to his match at WrestleMania, and that's all he was thinking about here. I've always been fascinated by this because it feels like history sort of forgets that Brett and Sean aren't leaving that far apart here. You know, Brett's out in November. Here Sean is in February, and he's done until WrestleMania, and then we know he's out of here. Hypothetically, was there ever any sort of second guessing and looking back and wondering, Hey, what if instead of dealing with someone who had all these questionable injuries and had a very questionable attitude, maybe some questionable, questionable substance issues. What if Vince had just said, fuck it, go join the NWO down South and have fun with your buddies. I'm hanging my hat with Bret Hart. We're going to continue this stone cold business and ride it out. And we're going to have a rematch from WrestleMania 13 because it was an unbelievable match. And we'll have the match that Austin really deserves as a crowning achievement, world title passing of the torch moment. And then just let those guys feud for the rest of the year. But instead he hitches his wagon to Shawn Michaels and Shawn's causing problems left and right and creating lots of issues with discipline and substance and unrest with the boys and the office. And now he's missing the main event in an injury that a lot of folks, like you said earlier, were questioning how bad is it really? He finished the rest of the match. What say you, do you think in hindsight, maybe Vince should have made a different decision? Well, I, I think that you're making a big leap of faith there because you're, you're humping all the, the negative on Shawn Michaels Brett wasn't the easiest guy in the world to deal with either. So you go with the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. However, Vince knew both devils. Brett could be just as difficult as Sean. Brett wasn't as public. Brett didn't have as many haters on the outside. Brett didn't make his his difficultness to work with as public as Sean did. And so the reality is that from Vince's point of view is which one did he want to work with? So it's there's a lot more to it than just what is on the surface there. <coughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so you, you have to weigh it all into consideration, but things could have been a whole hell of a lot different. And when you look at the landscape in the WWF from a year, let's go forward to WrestleMania and look at in a year. Brett and Sean are out of the picture completely. The two biggest, arguably the two biggest stars in the company the year before are now out of the company. And we're starting all over with this Stone Cold Steve Austin movement and we're, we're going to go in this new direction. So there was a, there was a lot happening with a lot of competition and a lot of different things going on at the time. It could have been a very different scenario had Brett stayed, but I think that going with Austin still was going to happen, whether it was Brett or Sean. Right. If you were to interchange those guys, the same thing would have happened at WrestleMania. You still would have had Stone Cold versus Brett, and uh, he would have beat him. I think you still would have had Brett uh, hemming and hawing over the finish. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, questioning any questioning the finish all the way up until he did it. I think that uh, a lot of different things could happen. You know, Hulk Hogan was 
negotiating way back before the first of the year to come in. There were a lot of what ifs. We could have had a completely different landscape in the wrestling business, and I don't know if the wrestling business would have exploded the way it did had any of those other scenarios worked out. Yeah, I mean, we might not have gotten the Mr. McMahon character, and the Stone Cold fever may not have gotten as big, because Stone Cold's over here, but still not to the point that they're beating Nitro in the ratings. But that Stone Cold versus Mr. McMahon character is what's going to really set it on fire. So... It's weird right. the way it all works out. Now, let's get to No Way Out. We're finally here. We open with a, a pretty nice video promoting the main event. We've talked about these awesome promos that used to air before the pay-per-views, and a pretty legendary voice comes on that's kind of synonymous with those videos. Yeah, it was a he was a great uh, voiceover guy from New York that Sahadi used all the time. I have no idea what the hell his name was, but he was a great voiceover guy that Sahadi used, and he was... He just gave a bit of authenticity to everything that he did. This is the first pay-per-view with the name No Way Out. Who came up with the name? There's no way out. This would usually be a lot. We would sit down. Everybody would submit names from creative services. Everybody on just all of his top people would submit names. And Vince would pick. Vince would kind of just sit around and then pick which one he liked best. Anything interesting about the initials to the show being NWO? Was the NWO even a thing at the time? Yeah, they're kicking your ass. Oh, well, then that didn't last for long because... <laughs> uh, we get a close-up of the blimp to start the show, and uh, it sort of looks like it's almost trapped in the corner uh, out of the view of pretty much everyone. Was Vince just fascinated with this fucking blimp? I mean, do we, was there like a blimp must pose edict for all the live shows? Well, the, the, <laughs> I forget this. I think this was the AOL blimp at the time, if I remember correctly. So you had to take so many damn shots of the blimp. It was an advertising blimp. No different than Goodyear. You got to take so many shots of the damn blimp. And AOL's paying for that damn thing, so we got to get them out there. Got to piss a the bizzles. Why do we not have a blimp shirt over at BruceBritchard.com? I'll tell you what we do have. King of all podcasts. Colossal Tussle. Monday Night Love. Blank is the greatest tag team ever. Chat me up. I got an ideal. Who booked this shit? I used to be over. I'm over. Wiz Awful, his house. We have got all the fun shirts. Dude, dude, dude. Pronouns, pal. Second most recognizable athlete. George the Rat. Hey, pal. FDM. Kabuki-ish. Friday noon's main event. I'm a Conrad Thompson guy. Must pose. Salad. Steel cage. Hashtag she pooted. Rib steel rule. I wasn't there. Tap out like you mean it. You know the rest of that. Come on, pick up a shirt right now over at BrucePritchard.com, including the Google machine throws you. Dick was everywhere. Blockomania, Ribomania, STFNW. BrucePritchard.com is your only place to pick up these fun shirts. When you pick up a shirt, eventually Bruce gives you a call, and you all can talk about the Punjabi boss man or the Stanford School of Dance, whatever you're into. We've got something for everybody, dozens and dozens and dozens of shirts. One of the top sellers for pro wrestling tees, and it's because everybody wants a call from Bruce. And we have stuff more than just shirts now, believe it or not. We've got the Doot 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 fanny pack, the I used to be over beanie. Uh, it's the best couple of bucks you can spend in wrestling right now, right, Bruce? Absolutely, and i got to share with you a story real quick. When I was in Costa Rica, I was wearing the I'm over shirt. And a guy walks up to me, and he's standing there, he says, what? So I'm sorry. He says, what are you over? 
and I just, I was stumped for a minute and I said, no, no, I'm, I'm over. He goes, oh, okay, I get it. And walked around, just walked away. But he stumped me for a minute. He just walks up to me and goes, what? I said, I, what do you mean? He goes, well, it says you're over. What are you over? You know, just explain to him I'm over. And then he goes, oh, okay, I get it. Walked away. You should have said with you. You know. That whenever you call BruceBritchard.com up in your Google machine, he calls you up on your phone machine. And you all talk about silly gimmicks, and he'll do an impression and put a ball on his nose and bark like a seal. We do all of this for $24.99. Come on. What are you waiting on? BruceBritchard.com. All right, next up on the show, we get the headbangers. Uh, and they, <laughs> this is such a hodgepodge fucking deal here. Um, they beat the artist formerly known as Goldust and Mark Marrow in 13 minutes and 54 seconds. Um, and before the match gets started, Sable and Luna are about to go at it when Marrow orders Sable to the back. And, uh, this match is not that great. It gets a star and a half. Uh, Keller gave it two stars. Meltzer didn't like it as much. What do you think of this match? I tried not to think of the match. I okay. I, I got to give you the sidebar of me watching this match. I'm I'm watching, and I I didn't go and look at the card or anything, man. I just put it up on the network and started watching. And as Marrow comes out and the Gold Dust comes out, first thing that really hit me in the face hard was good god the sable chants were outrageous she's over god like she Rome. was over yeah yeah and and you know you had your Marilyn Manson gold dust in there and you got the sable chants it was it was insane it was great um and then the other thing that kind of hit me is they they had the hard camera shot if you guys go back and you watch this pay-per-view, notice the guy to the right of the hard cameras, camera right. He's in a brown leisure shoot suit. I swear to God, if JR wasn't doing commentary, I would have sworn that was JR from 1970. But th- that's what I have to say about that match. I didn't think it was a good match, um, but I was just reminded how over sable was with just the little nuances god she was hot at the time let me just mention too you know i'm fascinated with time we talk about it almost every episode there's a lot of dudes who grew up on sable roll tide it's hard to believe she's gonna be 51 this year isn't that crazy uh it is she don't look it i feel like sable's been 30 forever but uh here, she comes back out, of course. You know what that's going to be. Distracts Mark Marrow. That allows Thrasher to get the pin with an inside cradle. They continue working the pull apart with the women after the match. So we've sort of set the stage for Sable to do some physicality and have some wrestling going down at WrestleMania. Uh, which version of Mark Marrow do you like the best? We've seen a few versions of him in wrestling at this point. We've seen Johnny B. Bad over in WCW, the wild man. And now he's doing this heelish boxer gimmick. Which of the three is more your speed? Johnny B. Bad. I knew you would say that. I, Johnny B. Bad entertained me. I liked watching Johnny B. Bad. He was, he was just, he was funny. And, and I used to love to listen to Dusty talk about Johnny B. Bad. I got the little, little Richard looking little motherfucker can't work a lit. But damn, he looks like little Richard. He got the little, he got the little pump up stick and the confetti goes everywhere. And we're going to make a million dollars with him. I was like, and I was just saying, but the bell has to ring. It don't matter, pumpkin head. He looks just like little Richard. I love it. Cause that was Dusty's creation. So that's probably why I'm partial to it. Um, what do you think of the blood in this match? 
I mean, that, that had to be some sort of an accident, right? I mean, why? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought the blood took away from the match, actually. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was an accident. He split his head on the, uh, ring steps. I'm sure Meltzer saw him blade, though. Um, but no, he, he, he cut his head on the ring steps. And here's why it took away for me, because in the finish of the match, the finish of the match was a switch. And there was so much natural sympathy already for Thrasher because of the blood, and they got heat on him all the way through. I thought that they should have switched it uh, mid-match because of the blood, but it was a bunch of young guys, and they're doing what they can do in there, and I just thought the blood kind of took away from it. But at the very end, when Luna and Sable finally hooked up, Again, that audience came unglued, and that was some good stuff. Luna on fire. I could gotta enjoy watching her and Sherry Martell, but her and Sable, Luna and Sable here was good shit. No doubt. Uh, next up, we see an interview with Owen backstage, and he's saying something like, "As long as Austin stays out of my way, there won't be a problem." What was uh, Owen and Steve's relationship at this time? You know, we're still not quite a year past the SummerSlam piledriver incident. You know, they were good. They were professional. And I don't know that, you know, I think there was some just weird vibes early on, but I think that there was a point where Steve got over it and they were professional with each other and did the business, did what needed to be done. Uh, next up, we see Sonny coming down to uh, introduce the lightweight match. And uh, I think she Ooh. is the best ring announcer in the history of the business. No offense to Howard Finkel or Gary Michael Capetta or Justin Roberts. I'm sorry. Absolute worst ring announcer in the history of the business. But, God, she looked good. No. I, she said words here? <laughs> Golly. I, I went deaf for a minute. It was unbelievable. Takamichi Noku was out here uh, taking on Pantera for the lightweight title. And Lawler mentions... The band Pantera during the match, which I didn't necessarily expect. Um, lots of interesting lines here. Lawler said something like, Taka's so small, he's a waste of skin. And Jerry says, everybody knows the Japanese are losers. And somebody in here, I think it's Brian Christopher, refers to Taka Michinoku as slanty-eyed. Just not a good look for Brian Christopher on commentary with uh, JR and Jerry Lawler. What did you think of the match? Meltzer didn't hate it. He gave it uh, two and a quarter stars. Wade Keller gave it two stars. The match was actually pretty good, and I've always I completely forgot about Pantera and who the hell he was, but Taka always entertained me, and the match was good. It was a good, solid match. Nothing wrong with the match, but the commentary, as you say, was atrocious, and I could just hear Jim Ross kind of cringing. Oh, God damn, wait. And JR just had one bit in the whole match. How's your boy doing over there, King? Your son, Brian Christopher. And Lawler, of course, hated to admit that he had children. He's got two. Um, but I guess if his son was Brian Christopher, you probably wouldn't want to admit that either. Oh, but, that's me. What? That's but me. it's true. I like Lawler it. took every chance he could to deny that that was his son. But then you take the family portrait, and there they are, and it's kind of hard to deny. What was the, the relationship like between them behind the scenes? 
I don't, you know, I don't really know because it, it was weird. It was uh, Brian. It was like Brian was just one of the boys with Lawler. There, there wasn't really, I never saw a strong father son relationship with Brian and Jerry. I saw more of a father son relationship with Jerry and his son Kevin. Uh, in Memphis, when I was around them, there seemed like there was a little bit more, but I don't know that Jerry was, he was always on the, doing his thing. And I don't know what kind of relationship he really had with them. So it's kind of hard for me to say in public, they were just like two of the boys. There's rumor and innuendo out there that Brian Christopher showed up late to uh, a taping one day and Lawler is the one who suggested that they find him. Do you remember that being the case? That wouldn't shock me at all. Yeah. Find him! Uh, I could see him say that in a heartbeat. After the match, of course, Michinoku does a a plancha over the post onto both Christopher and Lawler. Why do you think Taka never really caught on? Because his English was limited, and he never really could connect with the audience verbally. And that's that's the issue when you have someone that speaks a foreign language and they, they don't speak English fluently. It's hard to connect with the audience when you can't speak with them. And we're, you know, we're the only country in the world that doesn't speak another language for the most part, which is kind of funny. You know, you, you go to Mexico, most people speak, also speak English. Um, other countries, most people, they teach English in their schools and we teach other languages too, but it, it, they couldn't connect with the audience. It's that simple. I was about to laugh at you, and you said, they teach other languages in those schools. So I was like, everybody listening here took a foreign language in high school. And then we got a freshman girl to do our homework for us. Roll Tide. Hey, uh, chat me up about Brian Christopher. You know, I know people are going to send me all kinds of hate tweets. Ah, hey, hey, it's Conrad for this. But I always kind of thought Brian Christopher had potential. And I feel like maybe substance has gotten the way there because he was he was a good talker. He had some sort of odd charisma about him that made you interested in what he was doing. I mean, he was just a natural and, and a pretty good performer. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, he's Ric Flair old tide, but still the dude knew what he was doing. And it doesn't feel like he ever really got to where he could have achieved everything that maybe was possible for him. Is that all just because of the addiction? Brian was Brian's own worst enemy. He couldn't get out of, out of his own way. And he did have charisma. He wasn't the biggest guy in the world, but he did have a natural gift of gab from his old man. And he had natural timing. He was good in the ring, but he just couldn't get out of his own way. And he would screw up somehow, some way. If you gave him enough time, he was going to screw up. Is it kind of like, um, is that akin to Eddie Gilbert a little bit? You think? What do you mean? Well, in that sometimes he, he's his own worst enemy. Like he, everybody sees a lot of potential and then it could be something bigger, but then, you know, it doesn't happen. Well, I think, I think Eddie achieved a whole hell of a lot more than Brian Christopher ever did. So, uh, not, but Eddie, not money in the business. Brian Christopher made more just from you guys run here, right? Um, I don't know. I really don't know because Brian would squander it and kind of. Oh, Screw it up whenever he would hit a good spot. I'm not saying he kept it. I'm just saying he earned it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's go to... No, uh, I want to miss bank accounts right now. Let's go to uh, the WWF AOL chat room with Kevin Kelly interviewing Cactus AOL, Jack yes. And uh, Chainsaw Charlie, a.k.a. Terry Funk. And Cactus calls him Terry during the interview. 
And Terry doesn't have uh, the pantyhose over his face. AOL was like a big deal for you guys during this era, were they not? Goddamn right. They invented the Internet, didn't they? You know, AOL, it was it was perceived at the time that if you didn't have AOL, you weren't cool. So, like, I'm cool still to this day. I'm cool because I still got AOL. Um, it's coming back, just so you know. Uh, but it, it was – think about it. 30 years ago, we're still in the infancies in a lot of respects of the Internet. And AOL was a big deal, man. They were They were the big dog. What was not a big deal is the Godwins beating the Quebecers here. This match, ugh, 11 minutes, 14 seconds. Meltzer wrote, this is actually going to wind up being the most famous match on the card because they're going to end up having a Supreme Court fight over it in California. Whether or not forcing criminals to watch tapes of this over and over constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. But who would have ever thought Jacques could do a plancha? Um... After the match, of course, the Godwins clocked both with their slot buckets. Quote, in a performance like this, the Quebecers are still major heroes and drawing cards in Montreal. The nothing will ever kill wrestling in that city. Negative, a star and a quarter. Keller gave it a dud. Interesting to note that Raymond Rougeau is actually doing commentary in French here. So Jacques in the ring and his brother Raymond is actually doing commentary. What did you think of the match here? Oh, boy. Um, I actually, early on, yeah, there was a little, there was some fumble fuck up at the beginning, and then I, I write down on my notes, I said, Part, you know, parts are good, and then I finish up with too long, too bad, too slow. Uh, brutal. Brutal. It, it, and it was just so long and so arduous, I was begging whoever was running Gorilla. Oh, wait a minute. That was me. Should have given the cue and put everybody out of their misery. It was brutal. Hey, a fun question about Gorilla that I saw the other day on social media, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember who wrote this. But I thought it was a great question. Was Gorilla ever in Gorilla? Because it feels like every time we bring up, so were you in Gorilla? You would say, yes, and I was alone. It's like. How did this become the gorilla position if he was fucking never there? He was. He's the one. He was the the one in the gorilla position for all those years with Vince Senior, and then later with Vince Junior until um, pretty much until I came along. Before you were married, did you ever run across any girls who liked the gorilla position? Uh, there was that one in Nuevo Laredo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter listens to this show, man. Why, why are you letting her do that? I know I'm a bad father. Well, not just for that. Hey, and if y'all are listening to this on the 16th, my God, they're 19 years old today. Really? Yeah. And that's scary. So are you going to, I have children. You're going to send her out to go buy cigarettes. I do that already. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that there's been a whole year here where I wasn't engaged and your daughter was legal, and we never hung out? you damn right. <laughs> have you seen uh, Jacques' son, Cedric? I, the yes, rumor I have. The rumor is that this dude's like 6'7", 300 pounds, massive dude, and allegedly had a tryout a few months ago at the Performance Center, but I don't think it went very well. I think uh, his dad came out and sort of took some of the heat and said maybe it didn't go well because people didn't like him. Would you be surprised to see uh, Jacques' uh, Jacques' son, Cedric, do some big stuff in the business someday. 
He's a big, good-looking guy. He, the match I saw, I saw one match with him, and the match I saw, he was so damn big, he took up the whole ring. He was very, very green and trying to do things that a big guy like that should not do in the ring. Um, but he's somebody that if you could get him, I hate to say get him away from Jacques and get him away from Montreal. Um, and Jacques was a hell of a worker. Jacques was a hell of a talent and knew how to get heat in the ring and out of the ring. But I watched him, and I thought, wow, this kid has has it. He's got something about him. He's got a little kick in his step, and we may we may see him. It's going to take a few years, but we may see him eventually be a big thing. Can't, you know, you can't teach size. There's a picture of him uh, doing the, the bicep pose arm in arm with Hulk Hogan at an autograph signing. It's something else. If you haven't. Uh, seen him before throw him in your google machine cedric rougeau and click images Woo, big boy during the match here this horrible godwin's match lawler says don't get me started on bill clinton where's lee harvey oswald when you need him oh can you imagine somebody saying some shit like that today i i can't i can't imagine him saying it then right and, you know, even then, that's just off color and, and in poor taste. And I'm not a Bill Clinton fan, but still, oh, um, you don't say that. Let's, let's, let's not get into politics. Motherfucker. So then, <laughs> uh, I did that for you. Thank you. I just wanted to watch your face do the dip, do the eye close and the dip. Like, why? Why is he saying this shit? But no. Goddamn. But no, it wasn't. It just, you don't say that. Um, we then got an interview with Doot Doot and the tag champs, the New Age Outlaws, and he asked who their mystery partner is going to be, and they said, we don't know who it is, but we demand respect. We want to know who it is. And then we see Well, a- why don't y'all know who it is? Y'all are the tag team champions of the world of the world, so I think that maybe y'all should know who your partner of the tag team champions of the world are going to be in this here match. Uh, we then see the... I'm not a real athlete. I'm just a wrestler video. This was well done. Um, one of the best little promotional things you guys probably did during this era. What did you think of this video? thought it was excellent because it was, and the timing was great too. And the timing was great coming off of all of the press uh, with the whole Tyson thing. And people would always say, oh, you know, it's, it's all choreographed. Man, these are the greatest athletes in the world. So it was a way to do it. It was a Sahadi production, and to me, just told the story of, of wrestlers and the wrestling life and how great these athletes truly are. I feel like we should uh, mention here that this pay-per-view, people paid real American money for this. Next, wow. we see Jeff Jarrett, the NWA North American champion, make his way to the ring with Jim Cornette, the Rock and Roll Express, and Barry Windham. Do you know if Vince ever tried to get the Rock and Roll Express when they were hot in the 80s? I think he did. I think he tried to get Rock and Roll Express. He also tried to get the Midnight Express with Cornette. There wasn't any interest. They were doing big money, and they were doing great business with Crockett at the time. So why should they leave? But I think that Vince did try early on, but I don't know to what extent where those talks went. I do know with Cornette, they just weren't. I think Vince opened the meeting with uh, action figures, and they were like, why do we care about action figures? And they, they cared about the bottom line and money and wrestling. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure action figures 
matter for the bottom line. Anyway, um, next out is Bradshaw, the future JBL, carrying a huge bullwhip. And JR talked about how JBL was drafted by the Raiders, but his career was over because of a knee injury where he had at least four surgeries on it. And it's coming out in the Observer in this era, in these couple of months here, that the WWF has a major push planned for Bradshaw. They said that his style had really changed. He's working a lot snugger, a lot stiffer after a stint in Japan. And Meltzer would even write, they're trying to make Bradshaw into Stan Hansen, right down to the ring entrance with the bull rope and the ultra-stiff offense. So your boy Meltzer is all about it. And Bradshaw beats Jeff Jarrett by DQ in about nine minutes. So Jarrett retains the NWA North American title. And JR points out that this is kind of historic because it's the first time an NWA title had ever been defended on a WWF pay-per-view. And Lawler even talks about Paul Bosch and the NWA in that city. So they do sort of bring up the history of this. Um, in the end, Jarrett clocks Bradshaw with the racket for the DQ. And after the match, Bradshaw makes his own comeback, cleaning up. Uh, until both Ricky and Robert show up to take bumps for him. And then finally, Barry Windham comes out, and they're all cleaning house until the LOD makes the save. It gets half a star from Dave Meltzer. Wade Keller, though, gave it a star and a half. What would you think? You know, when you watch the match, I thought the match was pretty damn good for what it was. It wasn't a uh, stellar 18-star New Japan wrestling match. But it told a good story, and the, the actual wrestling match itself was pretty damn good. And we were looking to Bradshaw. This was a period where Bradshaw is young, big, strapping son of a gun. We were thinking, man, we might be able to make a big kick-ass baby face out of this guy. Unfortunately, that didn't happen at that time due to injuries. But that is where we were going, and hence... Don't put that damn NWA title on him. Would have killed him deader than Kelsey's nuts. <laughs> you think that um, that would actually kill the deal? Putting that, putting that <laughs> the NWA North American State Hemisphere Arena Championship of the World in North Dakota. Uh, yeah, it it just didn't mean anything and. It, it, it didn't mean anything on Jeff, would have meant less on Bradshaw. It's funny because um, Meltzer, I think, around this time, reported how old Barry Windham looked here, but how young. Whoa. What? You disagree? I thought, I thought actually, uh, it was one thing I was going to, I thought that Wyndham kind of looked like the old Barry Windham, meaning the young. I liked the way that Wyndham looked here because he looked like Barry Windham. It was funny because Meltzer said, um, everybody's talking about how Bradshaw is this young, strapping dude they're going to give the mega push to. Meanwhile, Barry Windham looks like this old, tired, washed-up dude. That's sort of Meltzer's take at the time. And Meltzer says they're the same age. They're both 37. That's not true. That's not true at all. Yeah, I, I found it really weird that that was reported here as being true, but it's clearly not. The case. JR even points it out in commentary. I think Bradshaw was 30 at the time. Uh, yeah, that would be, no, he would be 31, I think. We're just freestyling, I guess. I think he's 31 there, and I think that Barry probably would have been 37. Yeah, Barry would have been 37. But still, what a six year difference there. Uh, okay, let's talk about what's coming next. I can't believe this is all, 
The same pay-per-view. Um, we get an interview with Michael Cole, Triple H in China, and Cole asks about the mystery partner. And you, you left out you left out the best part of the match was when the Legion of Doom ran in to save Bradshaw. Now you want to know what's funny about that? What's that? It was February fifteenth, nineteen ninety eight. The first time that I met the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, was on February fifteenth. 1985 in Houston, Texas. And Joe Laurinaitis and I were just talking about that the other, the other day in Detroit. And it was just coincidental that like however many years later they're on, we're all in the WWF pay-per-view and so on and so forth in Houston, Texas. So this interview, uh, Hunter saying no one on the planet can take Shawn Michaels place. So it's going to be a handicap match four on three. Then we go to an interview with Duke and the Nation of Domination. And this is where you see there's a famous gif out there of The Rock sort of rolling his eyes at the camera. It's from this interview. Uh, Doc Hendricks talks about the dissension in the nation and says the only way to find out is to ask the leader. And Rock starts quickly talking before Farouk grabs the mic and says, you're just begging for me to whip your ass, ain't you? Uh, As Farouk starts talking, that's when The Rock makes this crazy face that's just all over the Internet now. Uh, obviously, we're planting the seeds for a split, and now let's get to the actual match. We got Ken Shamrock, the Disciples of Apocalypse, and Ahmed Johnson coming out, and Ahmed is yelling as he's walking out. What's Ahmed saying on the way to the ring here? Thank you for that. Lawler tells JR to define the word attrition, since this is a war of attrition. And JR totally ignores him, so King calls him out, and then JR pauses and says he knows what it means, and then he explains what it means. What's uh what's the relationship like here with Lawler and Ross? It does feel sort of contentious during this show, especially during this fight. That was King's job. That was their on air that was their on air thing. And plus you you know, you've got King who always wants to get JR riled up. I think JR's better when he's riled up. Sure. When he's on defense. So it was both guys doing their job, and J.R. Hearn, I know what attrition means, King. Can't spell it, but I know what it means. When Ahmed and Henry get in the ring, J.R. points out that Mark Henry is the strongest drug-free athlete in the world today. Uh, what's up with Ahmed's knee pads on his thighs? <laughs> I mean, he's uh, we've talked about this before, but chat me up. God, and they were, and, and the colors didn't match either on corresponding legs. Football players don't wear as many pads as Ahmed had on in this. He had them all the way up the thigh. Usually he, he wore one more than he usually did in this match. Usually he would wear just two, like one up on the thigh and then the knee pad. This time he had three coming up, but it was crazy. The part that blew my mind was when Mark Henry, when Ahmed first got into the ring and faced off with Mark Henry, the audience came unglued. And that was like one of those moments where you had, ooh, boy, there's something there with those two big fucking bulls meeting head to head. And the audience was into it for a minute. And then we took it away from them, baby, just when they wanted. They they ain't going to get no more of that. Uh Uh-uh, that felt good. So Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson, Chains, Skull, and Eight Ball beat Farouk, Rocky Mavia, Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, and Kama Mustafa in 13 minutes and 46 seconds. Melsord Wright, this was a fast-paced all-action match that was somewhat unwieldy in spots. 
Mayavia showed a near superstar level performance and Shamrock's work is improving as well. Um, he writes, match got ugly in the middle when DOA carried the load. While it was teased before the match in an interview where Rocky grabbed the mic from Farouk and started blabbing, during the match, they didn't work the dissension gimmick, instead saving it for the finish. Finally, it turned into a 10-way, and Shamrock used a belly-to-belly, a Fujiwara armbar, and then switched to an ankle lock to make Maivia tap out, and that set up their intercontinental title match at WrestleMania. Maivia blamed Farouk for the loss and actually slapped him, Farouk got mad and instinctively punched Brown, so everyone was at each other's throats. And Maivia walked off on his own first until finally Farouk ordered everyone back in the ring, and they do the salute. Two and a quarter stars. We're starting to see what The Rock is capable of here, are we not? Yeah, and and I thought this was a damn good match. Much better than it deserved to be. Right. Uh, when I was watching the entrances, I'm going, oh, God, this is going to be a train wreck, a train wreck or a pig fuck, one of the two. And as I watch them, I'm going, damn, they're having a hell of a match. It told a great story, and the match itself was pretty damn good. And then you add into that the end, and I love the ending with the nation all getting back together and we're, we're solid is one here. But everybody, everybody in that match worked their friggin' asses off. Sort of a fun uh, thing to look back at, too, is uh, when JR mentioned on commentary that D'Lo is a certified public huh. accountant. Uh, is he the first wrestler in the history of the business to be a CPA? I mean, I thought part of the gig with being a wrestler is you fuck your taxes up. Is D'Lo the first guy who doesn't do that? <laughs> I don't know. He may have fucked his taxes up one or two times. Uh, Vince used to cringe. Whenever he would say that, because it just takes away a little bit. Here's this tough guy, nation of domination. And if you need your taxes done, just go uh, call D-Lo or us. Taxes are us at 1-800-D-Lo. I think you better recognize you got more deductions. There you go. Um, all right, now it's what everybody's been waiting for. Stone Cold Steve Austin doing a promo with Michael Cole here. And Austin's saying he doesn't give two craps about who the mystery partner is. And we then see Jr. and Lawler, and Jerry's claiming he's holding one of Austin's report cards from kindergarten, and it says Austin doesn't play well with others. We get a video package treatment here, hyping the Vader and Kane match, and during that you briefly see Kane double choke slamming a young team by the name of the Hardy Boys. Uh, and during the video package, they show Kane lighting the Undertaker's casket on fire, and then we see a woman in the crowd crying in this video. But that's actually not from when they set the Undertaker's cask on fire. It's from the night after Brian Pillman's death. Well, that's um, what Meltzer says. I'm sure he went back and watched it. Kane pinned Vader in just about 11 minutes. Meltzer would write, Vader did a good of a job as you could under the circumstances. Mankind had a better match, but that's because Mankind's style is more conducive to working with a monster since Vader can't and shouldn't take those kind of bumps for his character. Mainly a brawl, but there were enough twists to keep it entertaining although it never had much heat. Um, Vader threw some stiff blows at Kane. He splashed him, even moonsaulted him, and then he posed for the crowd while Kane sat up. Vader then got a fire extinguisher from under the ring, kept spraying it at Kane. He finally delivered a power bomb, but Kane sat up. He eventually uses uh, a choke slam and a tombstone, and Vader noticeably tried to jump, so it looked like he was trying to dunk a basketball and going up for the slam. But at least Kane had him under control the whole way, and there was no danger in the move. Uh, star and three quarters. 
After the match, Kane went under the ring and took out a giant wrench and clocked Vader with it. This is an angle to set up Vader being out of action due to needing some eye surgery to protect his eye from the injuries that he suffered in that famous Stan Hansen Tokyo Dome match where it had perhaps jarred loose in a television angle. He was carried out of the ring to sell the angle. Keller and Meltzer both gave this whole bit a star and three quarters, but you've got a funny story that you told in our Vader episode about the wrench, right? <laughs> and that, well, that wasn't this wrench in particular, but it was a later wrench and the, the wrench was a gimmick wrench. And at one point, and I don't think it was here, it was in the other one, but at one point Kane stepped on the wrench and the wrench just sunk right into his boot because it was a foam gimmick wrench. Same thing here, but it was a little bit snugger wrench than the one previously used on Big Leon. Had to be a big wrench because Leon's big. And I thought the match was okay. Um when the best match on the card is an eight-man tag involving the Nation of Domination and DOA and Ahmed Johnson, you you got to wonder. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Let's get to the main event. Uh, we've got the video package hyping the main event. We see the New Age Outlaws come out, and here Billy Gunn is carrying a table. Road Dog is wearing a Tennessee Oilers shirt because they had just relocated from the Houston Oilers to Nashville, and they're calling themselves the Tennessee Oilers, at least that first year. Of course, they're the Titans now. And then Road Dog introduces Triple H in China, and we're about a month and a half or so away from the Outlaws officially joining DX, which took place on Raw the night after WrestleMania 14. But they're here teaming up, and JR's reminding us, Shawn Michaels is not in action because he hurt his back uh, training during the week. Um, now it's time for the announcement. <laughs> Can't believe this is real. Finkel announces that the mystery partner is... Salvio Vega! From Los Bariquas! And he's actually out of the entrance before his music even hits. You guys have built this all night. Who's going to be the mystery partner? And it's fucking Savio Vega. And you could see, by the way, I should clarify, Savio Vega is a hell of a wrestler, lots of great matches, not throwing off on Savio at all. However, I don't think when they put tickets on sale for this show, the August prior, because they ran the summit and they were promoting that they're bringing in your house back to Houston and you're going to get a pay-per-view on Sunday, February 15th. And Brett, the Hitman Hart is the first picture on the poster. The undertaker's there stone cold's there and Shawn Michaels was there and they list Bret Hart undertaker stone cold, Shawn Michaels, British bulldog, Legion of doom, Ken Shamrock, DOA, the new nation of domination, gold dust, Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, and many more superstars. This is what's advertised when you first, have a chance to buy your tickets. Of course, Undertaker's not on this show. Sean's not on this show. Bret Hart's gone. British Bulldog's gone. Brian Pillman's passed away. This is a fucking crazy time in the business right here for the card being turned upside down, is it not? Hashtag card subject to change. No doubt about it. I mean, when they make the announcement that Vegas coming out, you can see the look on Hunter's face where he knows it's coming, and then it does. The crowd reaction is not favorable, and it's just written all over Hunter's face. Like, what can you do? 
what other options were suggested when you guys found out four days ahead of time, Sean's not going to be there. What else was discussed before you decided, God damn, pal, it has to be Savio Vega. Man, I, I, everything was discussed and it became, we tell them we're honest. Sean's not going to be there. And as far as they know, it's going to be a three on four. And then it's just settled on. So no matter, no matter what you could have suggested in that situation, nothing was going to be as good as Shawn Michaels. And I think we, well, I don't think we knew, we knew it was going to be a fart in church. So you just got to bite the bullet and take your lumps. The, the part, you know, was, okay, they'll forget about it if it's a great match and Savio will deliver a great match. Ah, boy, it was tough getting that stink out of the, out of the building. And that's the thing that's unfair. I mean, Savio is in a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. Nobody could really take Sean's spot from a star power standpoint, from an in-ring standpoint. Savio Vega is one of the best performers in the ring that night. Nobody's knocking that. But as far as star power, hey, man, I bought tickets thinking Bret Hart and The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels were here, and they're not. It was it was tough. There, there was, like I said, there's nobody that could fill those shoes. And he was put in an unenviable position, but Vince felt it was better to have four on four instead of the four on three. That was also something that was discussed. Do a handicap match and beat the shit out of the heels and have a happy, happy, joy, joy. And Vince wanted to have a competitive match. It was not, we just were in an unenviable position that you had to do something. And that's what we did. And we live with it. Austin, Goldust, lots of guys give a lot of credit to Savio Vega for helping get them over in the WWF. Were any of the boys campaigning for Savio to have this spot? Practically all of them uh, in the match because they knew they'd have a great match with Savio. But uh, but at the same time, nobody was kidding themselves saying that the people are going to accept Savio for a replacement. But as far as having the match and a good guy to be in that spot, I think Almost everyone to the man was in favor of Savio taking that spot because they knew they'd have a good match out of it. Does Savio uh, make more money for this shot than he would his normal spot on the card? From my understanding, this is Savio's only main event on a pay-per-view for you guys. Would this have been the biggest payday in his wrestling career up to that point, probably? I'm sure he was taken care of fairly. I mean, I'm sure he made a hell of a good payday in it. Owen comes out to a great pop, and next out is uh, Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack. And Jr. points out that Funk is middle-aged and crazy, a line he had used to describe him during his NWA run in 1989. That tells you where we are here as far as Terry Funk. Uh, Owen, Funk, and Cactus start throwing weapons in the ring from the dumpster that Cactus had wheeled out. And then Austin comes out to a huge pop. One that Jr. says he's never heard a bigger ovation in Houston as the one we're experiencing as Austin walks to the ring. And what a legendary team in hindsight. You know, Owen Hart, Steve Austin, Terry Funk, Mick Foley. We start with lots of uh, trash can shots to the head uh, by Austin early on. And then later in the match, Triple H hits Funk with a ton of trash can shots, including a chair shot to the head, 
and then Funk falls through the ropes head first to the floor and then gets power bombed through two chairs by Road Dog. And it's kind of shocking that Vince allowed barbed wire to be used here, at least for the time. Um, Cactus is using it here, and Savio wraps it pretty much completely around him. And then Triple H hits him with the chair. Bruce, barbed wire, February 98. How did this come to be? Hated it. And it was something that they were in the back, and Savio came out with the barbed wire for his entrance. And I see Savio with the barbed wire, and I remember going, what the hell are we doing with barbed wire? Because we had all the other gimmicks and all the other toys out there, but Vince always had this thing about he hated barbed wire. He didn't like the barbed wire uh, matches, barbed wire fence matches and things like that. And I said, guys, can't can't do the barbed wire. And everybody in the match was, oh, my God, if we don't have the barbed wire, we don't have a match. You know, it's like this important spot. we we got to have the barbed wire. And Vince relented. And gave in to it. But I remember, because I spoke up when I saw it, I'm like, what the fuck are we doing with barbed wire? And that was the spot. I think they could have done without it, but sometimes he relented to the to the talent because they felt really strongly they had to have that barbed wire. One of the spots that people still talk about to this day, and Austin recently talked about on his podcast when he had Billy Gunn as a guest, which is a great listen, by the way, if you haven't heard Billy Gunn on Austin's podcast, you should check it out. There's two parts. They're both great. Uh, Austin threw a garbage can at Billy Gunn's face. What a fun spot that is. Um, <laughs> unless you're Billy Gunn. Unless you're it. Billy Gunn. No doubt about it. Of course, Cactus Jack eventually makes the hot tag to Steve Austin, who looks really good for this ending flurry and winds up using a stunner on Road Dog for the pin. And after the match, gives another stunner to Billy Gunn and kicked Helmsley off the apron. Uh, China shoves him twice and flipped him off, and he finally kicks China and then gives her the stunner for the final big pop, and that's how we end the show. Three and a half stars, um, and finishing it with a stunner on China. I mean, the crowd was all into that. Meltzer gave it three and a half stars. Keller liked it a little less. He gave it three and a quarter. What did you think of the main event? I thought that it was good. I thought it delivered, and... It was as good of a match as it possibly could have been. Would it have been better with Sean? Absolutely. We did the best that we could. Uh, it's kind of a toss-up for me between this eight-man and the eight-man prior to it, but the star power has to get the nod here as far as being the best match on the card, and thank God, because it was it was a rough card overall, man. The thing as a whole was a little brutal, but it's worth going back and watching and seeing how far, you know, the change and how far we've come in 30 years and to think back that it was only 30 years ago. I feel like I should plug right now our Instagram because there's this poster I was telling you about, or this flyer uh, from when tickets first went on sale back in August of 1997 for this show. you got to see this flyer, man. It's something to see. It's Instagram forward slash Pritchard show. If you're on Pritchard show or if you're on Instagram, just look for Pritchard show and you'll see it there. It's a yellow flyer. We've also got a really cool uh, advertisement that we saw uh, for WrestleMania seven, where $77 is all it took to get you a ticket to WrestleMania, a hotel room and transfers to and from the airport in the hotel. It's unbelievable that this exists. Uh, check this and a lot of other cool stuff, including a look at the buried alive tombstone, which we talked about, uh, last week in our Undertaker episode, you can see all of that right now on our Instagram at Pritchard Show. Bruce, we've got some questions from social well, media. 
Before we go to questions, I, you know, I wanted to, to just kind of say, you know, you look at this show as a whole. To me, the greatest thing that happened out of this entire show, and, and only a couple of people even realize this, was out of this show came WrestleMania 17 in Houston, Texas. How so? Well, in the middle of the show, what, what had happened is, obviously, you talked about the Nashville Oilers, and, and Bud Adams had taken the Oilers to Nashville. The Oilers had previously occupied the Houston Astrodome, and the Astrodome now was sitting vacant for the most part. The SMG management group, Mike McGee and Jeff Gaines, had taken over management of the Houston Astrodome. So in the middle of this event, I'm sitting up at gorilla position, and I'm good friends with Mike and good friends with Jeff, and they had come up and sat down with me, and asked, I said, hey, Bruce, you know, what, what do we have to do, man? We're, we're running the Astrodome now. What do we have to do to get WrestleMania? And Jerry Briscoe's sitting there with me and we, we go, well, pay us. So, ah, oh, man, we can't pay us. Well, no, pay us and we'll come. And it was that moment and they met with Vince that night and the seeds for WrestleMania 17 in Houston was the first market that ever really paid for WrestleMania. And that was the first time we had a sponsor in gallery furniture and so many things, but that all the seeds of that and the first conversations took place on this night, February 15th in 1998 that made history in a lot of ways and how WWF does business for WrestleMania going forward. So there you go. The seeds were planted right here. Let's get to some uh, social media questions, Bruce. We're going to do these rapid fire. Are you ready? Ready. Uh, Mike wants to know, in Vader versus Kane, why did they zoom in on the gimmick wrench after Kane hit Vader? I was believing it was real until the close-up shot of how fake it was. Was this from Bruce's box of gimmicks? Oh, bullshit. You didn't know it was fake, and you thought it was real until I told you it was a gimmick. Now, Sam wants to know, was the title No Way Out a subliminal NWO reference? No, we didn't realize that until much years later when we had the NWO. Tristan wants to know, what were some of the WWS plans in regards to the light heavyweight title? We really wanted to feature uh, Taka Michinoku, and we were looking to feature Al Snow, as a matter of fact, in that division too. But try to bring in some of the smaller stars and have a division centered around them. Nicholas wants to know, is it true Psycho Sid was one of the names kicked around for Shawn Michaels' replacement? It was actually talked about. Uh, Brandon wants to know, can you ex- uh, explain... The unsanctioned eight-man no DQ match because the referee is refereeing <laughs> and counting to five, which I never understood in a no DQ match. What it make again? You're trying to uh, who is this, Brandon? Yeah. Brandon, you're trying to apply logic to an illogical situation. Stop. Uh, Rodney wants to know why were Austin and Owen teaming so soon after a heated feud? Common enemies. Chris wants to know, any good DOA stories? There was a night in Chicago when we used to have the ramp uh, that went up for Monday Night Raw, and the ramp would extend on the back side. And the DOA came down came down the ramp for their motorcycles, and we were all sitting there. And Paul Ellering, I think, lost it, or one of the DOA lost it, and took out the gorilla position. And I'll never forget Sergeant Slaughter diving 
in front of Vince, pushing Vince out of the way and Sarge taking the bump and getting the shit burned out of his face from the motorcycles. But uh, I don't know that those guys were great riders. James so wants to, to know, why was the Taka versus Brian storyline dropped? And were there ever any talks of them possibly wrestling at WrestleMania 14? There was talks about it, but unfortunately nobody really seemed to care. John says, Stone Cold got one of the loudest pops I've ever heard at this show. Do you remember a specific point where Vince looked up over at you at Gorilla and said, God damn, pal? Actually, this was one of those nights that reinforces your decision when you hear something like that. Michael wants to know, is there any ref that takes a floppier bump than Earl Hebner? <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the worst bumps in the business, but I love baby Earl. Um, no, there's not. Except for that guy. Remember the guy with his shirt untucked? Oh, from Survivor His bumps were worse. Yeah. Patrick wants to know, does Bruce have any Luna Vachon stories? She seemed to set ahead of her time and underappreciated by WWF creative. I think Luna was certifiably crazy being raised of a Sean. She just was out there. She was a third generation wrestler, I guess. And it was in her blood. But I, I think if you were to certify somebody, you could absolutely certify Luna as crazy. Dave writes, you've said before that Vince hates babyface matches. Why did he allow two heels to wrestle in the Godwins versus Quebecers match? Who doesn't love pig farmers? God damn, they're pigs. <laughs> David asked a great question here. Would the finish have been different if Sean could have performed? Yeah, probably would have beat Austin. David has a question for us about Owen Hart. Why did WWE drop the Owen Hart face run so fast? Well, it wasn't a face run. It was a match. It was common enemies and, uh, you know, enemies bonding together to go against other enemies. Uh, Adam wants to know, was there ever any consideration to having China replace Sean in the main event? I don't remember ever talking about that. No, I, I do remember talking about Sid and everybody else in, in the free world, but not China. Jeffrey wants to know, why do you think that the WWF's light heavyweight division wasn't as successful as WCW's cruiserweight division? I don't think that we had the, the same... We didn't have the same type of matches, and Vince wanted the matches to be a little bit slower paced and more logical. Vince didn't like the car crash aspect of the WCW cruiserweight matches, and that's what WCW did on purpose, and Vince wanted a different style. Uh, Jim wants to know, hypothetically, how would Stu Hart describe Bader to someone? Hey, big, uh, stinky bastard. Uh, he, he froth, frothy. Aaron wants to know, was the pay-per-view concept in your house dropped shortly after this because you wanted to expand to three hours and charge more so you just didn't want to confuse the marketplace? Well, we had, we had expanded to three hours on this pay-per-view, and we did drop it because there was confusion as to when we started that, they were two-hour, and they were at a lesser price than the normal pay-per-views, and we just started theming each one and dropped the in-your-house. All right, let's, let's go out on a winner here. Uh, Ryan Brown wants to know, how would Vince McMahon say the name of this pay-per-view? No way! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah! Oh my god, Ow. that was awful. Thank you for finally stopping. Hey, let's uh, let's go ahead and remind you of what's coming up next week, and let's go ahead and give them a poll option. Are you ready to do this, Bruce? <laughs> yes, I am, because I have no idea where you're going. Is this all you? No, it's not all me. You've approved this months ago. Here we go. I know. That's my point. No Way Out 2003 is what we're coming up on next week. And if you'd like to ask a question about No Way Out 2003 as we approach the 15-year anniversary of that show, we encourage you to ask it on Twitter or Facebook. You can catch us on Facebook, and please like us there. We'd really appreciate that. It's Pritchard Show on Twitter and it's something to wrestle on Facebook. Every single morning you can wake up and get your little morning deuce with Bruce action on Facebook. And we've got some fun interaction over there like Facebook Live every so often with Bruce. And sometimes it'll go on just unannounced. But you can also ask your No Way Out 2003 questions there. You can also ask those questions on Twitter at Pritchard Show. So next week, No Way Out 2003. Bruce, as I hit you with this cold, do you have any recollection of No Way Out 2003? Could you name the main event right now if you had to? Absolutely not. It's The Rock and Hulk Hogan. It's Steve Austin and Eric Bischoff. It's Triple H and Scott Steiner. It's Chris Benoit teaming up with Brock Lesnar to take on Team Angle, which is Charlie Haas, Kurt Angle, and Shelton Benjamin. we got The Undertaker working with Big Show. Matt Hardy's working with Billy Kidman. Lance Storm and William Regal are taking on Kane and Rob Van Dam. Chris Jericho is working with Jeff Hardy, and we are covering it next week as we approach the 15-year anniversary. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I believe next week will be the 15-year anniversary. No Way Out 2003. Scott Steiner's on the poster. I mean, old Ham Cube is on the poster. Now, what's coming up the following week? Set your calendars, boys and girls, and you want to go vote on this on Twitter. The poll is back on Twitter, at Pritchard Show. And what we're going to run through right now is what you'll hear on March 2nd, whatever wins. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Poll topic number one, Shawn Michaels, 1993-94-95. What might we talk about if we cover Shawn Michaels, 93-94-95? Well, you're going through the whole... Intercontinental champion to possibly being the guy and all the obstacles that Sean faced all the way through that. The internal battles that Pat Patterson and I had just trying to get Sean, I guess, a little bit recognition in the feelings that Vince had during that time. Poll option number two, Diesel. He had quite the run in the WWF. Before he was Kevin Nash, he was Diesel, and he was your world heavyweight champion. What might we talk about if Diesel wins the poll? The whole evolution of the weak chin at Vince's poolside table and the original thoughts of what we thought we could do with Diesel with Shawn Michaels and whether or not Vince really ever saw him as being a main singles competitor and obviously how those plans changed as we went along. Poll topic number three, Shawn Waltman, a.k.a. the one 2 3 Theater X-Pac. What might we talk about if X-Pac wins the poll? What the hell is a skinny guy's name? I hate it. Call him something else. The evolution of that name, the one, two, three kid, and the ups and downs of Sean Waltman trying to make his way in the WWF. Last but certainly not least, Triple H, 95, 96, 97. Bruce, how much ass are you going to kiss if Triple H wins the poll? Well, I'll get the chapstick out for this one, by God, and we'll talk about the original Pat Patterson and I, as we've talked about many times on this show, 
going to Walter Kowalski to check out his student, Terror Rising, and the whole evolution of Triple H, and what was the one thing that got Vince's attention with Triple H before he had even ever seen him work. Uh, now, allegedly, according to the rumor in innu- innuendo, the first time you laid eyes on Triple H, you said, this guy's the future of our business, the greatest superstar of all time, and really deserves the keys to the kingdom. We should sign him. Right, Bruce? Absolutely. So Not there, far from that. There you go. Poll option one, Shawn Michaels, 93, 94, 95. Poll option number two, Diesel. Poll option number three, the one, two, three kid and Xbox. And last but certainly not least, poll option number four, Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, 95, 96, and 97. Go vote in that poll right now. It's at Pritchard Show on Twitter. And don't forget, on March the 9th, the following week, we're going to watch Saturday night's main event 15 with you. This one aired back on March 12th, 1988. So we're going to have some fun, kick it old school on March the 9th. Next week, it's No Way Out 2003. Drop those questions on us right now on Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to vote in the poll only on Twitter. And I want to remind you again, we're still doing a little bit of a drive for subscriptions for our YouTube channel. If you're trying to introduce someone to the show for the very first time, there's no better place to go than YouTube.com forward slash something to wrestle. You'll find lots of little interesting clips there. All the full episodes are there, too. But as we continue to grow this thing, we're going to get all the little clips from our show. So you'll just be able to go to that channel and say, hey, I want to hear the story about coffee in the good eye. Well, that's going to be on there. Uh, go hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. We want your support on social media. The show's free. Click a couple of buttons and pick up a shirt. Why don't you at BrucePritchard.com? He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at hey, it's Conrad. And unless you got something else, Bruce, we are out of time. We're out of time. We'll see you in two weeks, Vegas. Notarib.com. You don't want to miss this special guest. See you then. Notarib.com. Next week, No Way Out 2003. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.